Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done just that. They never gave up no matter what. And if you are a regular listener to our show, you know that the stories that we share on this show are phenomenal, each and every one of them. And the other interesting part about that is that people relate in so many different ways to the different stories. It doesn't matter if someone had gone through severe abuse or extreme poverty or loss of some kind or disease or depression or emotional issues. We all find when we listen to other people's stories that we can relate. We can take something back and we can give to others of what we've learned about how they survive their struggles and so that's what this is about and I'm always excited every time that I listen to a new story it's it's just amazes me how people and the human spirit can survive insurmountable circumstances and come out winners and every single one of my guests is a winner and I'm so excited to have them on Without you guys, without our listeners, we wouldn't have a show. And so I thank you. I thank you for listening, for commenting, for sharing in feedback, etc. And today is no exception. We have a gentleman with a phenomenal story. I think my mouth hung open because I was shocked that any human being could survive this much in the area of physical issues heart in particular. So with me today I have Christophe LaFontante. He was a healthy little boy who had a near-death experience due to a sudden complete heart blockage and failure at the age of six years old. Now that's almost unbelievable. I know that we have have read stories and we've seen movies of of children who have gone through uh, severe heart issues even at a young age but with Christophe this didn't stop there his life was an amazing life and what he has survived physically Christophe survived a pacemaker implantation two heart transplants diabetes dialysis treatment a kidney transplant and other life-altering procedures. He is known, this is what I really liked about his title of his book which we're going to talk about later in the show. One man, three hearts, 
Nine Lives. And I think in that title of his autobiography tells the whole story. He is a man who has beat death on more than one occasion. And this is a miracle story you don't want to miss. Welcome, Christoph. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me today. Well, this is going to be a roller coaster ride, I think, of emotions because I know that you're an avid storyteller and you're going to share your story of what you went through. And I know people are going to relate, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, to many of those aspects of your story. So let's start with that first experience in the hospital when you were six years old. Tell us about your memories of that. Well, for me, the night in particular when I first fell ill is very vivid in my mind because everything that happened happened so suddenly, but it was so traumatic that that night in particular stayed with me. Um, The months following was kind of a blur, and it's my mom who's over the years with storytelling has filled in the blanks for me. But that initial night after attending a karate class, I came home, I remember sitting down with my family, we had Chinese food, I remember going down into the basement to play video games with my brother, and I suddenly started to feel a sharp pain in my abdomen. And before I knew it, I started to get drastically ill. And I told my brother to get my mom for help. I remember trying to make it up the stairs, and I collapsed about halfway up the staircase. And my mother, who happens to be a physician, ran down to see me and could tell immediately that something was severely wrong. So she carried me upstairs, and within minutes, the situation got progressively worse. Wow. I was in the bathroom... I remember she ripped away the carpet to place me on the cold tile to try and make me feel better. I remember her yelling out my name to try and keep me awake because apparently I was fainting and closing my eyes. I lost all my blood color. I was very pale. And she tried her best to kind of take care of me throughout the night. But as the situation got worse, she brought me into the hospital to see my pediatrician who then realized that the situation was way beyond his care and recommended that I go to the emergency room. Let me just interrupt you for a second. At sure. this at this point, like even your mom before you got to the hospital, did did she realize that it could be a heart issue? No, she in fact she thought it could have been food poisoning from the Chinese food that we ate. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Because All I was complaining of at that time was severe stomach pain. But when we got to the hospital and I was examined, the doctors actually believed that it could have been appendicitis. And I was scheduled to go in for a procedure to have an appendectomy. It was a resident, a young young doctor at the time, who happened to notice on my heart monitor that my heart rate was irregular. And he saved me from that surgery, and it was then realized that I had a severe heart issue. My goodness. So you went through the surgery. Now were you, first of all, even that that initial time in the hospital there, were you scared? Like how did you, I, how did you deal with that as, as a little boy? I actually was not scared 
until they started poking me and prodding me with needles. Again, I don't remember a lot of what happened in the following months, but I do remember that initial IV and them trying to get it into my little arm. And I remember screaming out for pain and they had to remove my mom from the room, which I wanted her right next to me because she made me of feel safe. Of course, sorry. of course. And I just, I had never felt pain like that. And I didn't know what was going on, why they were trying to stick me with this needle in my arm. Um, so that was very, very scary for me at the time. With my mom being a physician, for some reason I just, I felt very confident that she was going to take care of me and make everything all right. Having a mom that was a doctor, that was sort of a relief to me because I always thought to myself, well, mom is going to know what to do. Chorus. And so, continue the story. What did they end up having to do when they when they did realize that it was a heart issue? Well, when they realized it was a heart issue, again, thankfully, I did not go in for the uh, appendectomy. And so, they realized that the case was more advanced for them to even deal with in New York. And so, I was transferred to the National Institutes of Health in Maryland for further research and investigation into what was exactly going on. And it was there that I had a pacemaker implanted at the age of six. Oh my goodness. Is that like the first? Oh, definitely one of the first. I, as I recount in my book, I was the only six-year-old on the unit. Um, most of the other patients were over the age of 50. They didn't even have patient gowns in my size. So, you know, uh, a lot of people remember it as the adorable little boy that was walking around in an adult um, patient gown. No kidding. That was, that was dragging on the floor. <laughs> and how long were you in the hospital then? I was in the hospital for about two and a half months before I was released to come home. And did, but at that age, it, that seems like an eternity. Right, of course. Now, did you have? Did they have a heart available quickly, or did you have to wait? Or was that the the recovery time in the hospital, or the time waiting for the heart? Oh well, at that time, I was not getting a new heart. That was just the pacemaker. Oh, that was just the pacemaker. I'm yes. sorry. Okay, all right. No, the heart. Yeah, the heart came later, um, in my teen years when I was going through puberty. Okay, I'm going to take that out then. Okay, we'll remove that. Um, so what happened your junior year in high school? So I, once I got the pacemaker, I had about 10 years where I lived a relatively normal lifestyle. Of course, I went back about twice a year for checkups. And the only limitations that I had was I was not able to participate in competitive sports. But when I was in my junior year of high school and going through puberty, that was when my heart could not really keep up with the body, um, the changes that my body was going through. I started to gradually get more and more sick. I was having different symptoms like stomach pain and nausea, dizziness. My endurance was really low. I was weak. And so I went in for a heart evaluation. And at that time, it was recommended that I undergo a possible transplant evaluation. So I was then transferred from the NIH back to New York because during that 10-year span, medical advances had taken place in New York. Mm. And now New York had surpassed the NIH 
in terms of, you know, taking care of cardiac issues and transplant patients. And for me, I didn't even think that this was a possibility. I kind of shrugged it off that they were just sending me there as a technicality. Uh, but to my surprise, when I underwent the evaluation and the doctor sat me down and told me that I was a prime candidate for a transplant, I was beside myself, to say the least. I couldn't even imagine something like that happening. To have somebody else's heart placed right, in my body right, right. was just something that I couldn't even fathom. Did, do they offer counseling for that kind of situation? Oh, yes. They had a number of different programs in place. Um, it was a whole team that I worked with um, from nutrition to social work to therapy. Uh, it was very, very uh, intensive. And how, how were you emotionally at this time? I was definitely scared. I was... I don't want to say depressed, but I started to, you know, keep to myself. I was very quiet and very, I was always thinking and worried and my mind was always racing, a lot of anxiety. Interesting. It was very tough to deal with at that age. Like I said, I had never really heard of such a concept before and to imagine undergoing a surgery where First of all, they would have to break open my chest right. and then take out my heart to replace it with that of a stranger's. I, it just was a lot to process. I spent nights on my computer researching, seeing scary images, and that didn't really help much. Um, so it was definitely challenging to go through emotionally. But you d made it through, and you... I'm sure got stronger. And then, what happened in university? Well, once I got my heart, it was actually one of the biggest blessings for me because it was the first time that I felt normal, so to speak. I had felt more alive and healthier than I ever had during my adolescence. Really? The problem with that is that I kind of took advantage of that situation. Mm. And then... I went to the extreme of thinking I was unstoppable and now just going and partying too much and, you know, going overboard. And then with my medications and things, I started to get a little bit lazy because now that I had transferred to Columbia and I was in the city and living on my own, I didn't have my mom monitoring everything and making sure I took my meds and right. setting things up for me. and. I lost track and once again my body just could not handle those extreme changes that I was going through and the stress that I was putting on it and so my heart rejected after four years wow. and I spent seven months in the intensive care unit waiting for a second heart. Now did you go through guilt while you were in the hospital feeling that possibly you, you created this scenario? Absolutely. The guilt was so intense. To this day, it's something that I think about, that I regret, that if I could change and do different, I absolutely would. Because 
I had been given a second chance at life, and not even just at life itself, a, a better life than I had before. And to have taken that gift and just really been so irresponsible and not taking care of it the way I should have, it, it still haunts me to this day. Interesting. Now you also, I believe it was at this time that your kidneys failed, is that correct? Correct. So I really paid the price because the first time around when I waited for my first heart, I only waited for five days. I was in the hospital for about a month and so as vigorous as the process was, it, I, it was much more intense the second time around. And I do believe it was almost as if it was life punishing me hmm. for having taken advantage of that gift because it wasn't going to be so easy this time. And my kidneys failed, and I was on dialysis for two and a half years after receiving my heart. Now, you not only suffered extreme physical issues obviously I mean we can't even begin to imagine what you went through and your family you know when you're suffering your whole family suffers it's not just you but you also went through severe emotional breakdown and which is partly what you addressed uh, a little bit there and the drug addiction so you were dying physically and emotionally how did you finally what was your pivotal point that actually turned you around, both physically, emotionally, mentally, possibly spiritually? Was that at this time that there was that pivotal point? I would have to say it didn't come until later. Okay. I went through many more hardships. Uh, I went through the kidney transplant, which was another blessing, but then shortly after that, I started to experience uh, muscular weakness. I was dealing with a lot of issues within my family. My parents were on their way to a divorce and things were very hard. I was confused about my sexuality, which was something that I kept to myself and was just eating me alive. and all of that compounded together is what led into my drug addiction and I really had to hit rock bottom before I made up my mind that I wanted to turn my life around and it was shortly after getting my trach and just really being in a position where I was completely vulnerable and I had nothing else left to lose in a sense and when I was in the hospital and I started to reflect and think about how far I had come and everything I had been through, I realized I had to make a choice whether I was just going to live my life defeated or if I was now going to try and turn it around and make the best of the situation and show people that I could overcome and I could make myself strong again and not in the physical sense but emotionally and mentally and just show people that there is life beyond everything that I have gone through. 
One thing that I found interesting when I was reading your story is that you were an honor student, you know, right from the young years right on through to university. How did you handle that? How did you have the time, the tenacity, the, uh, did you have tutors? Um, how, how did you, or was it strictly your own decision that you're going to make something of your life no matter what was going on with you uh, physically? Well, academics was something that was enforced in our family since a very young age. I was, me and my siblings, uh, we were always told that our studies came first. We were not allowed to watch TV or play video games during the week. Um, Our grades were very, very important to us. And so that carried on um, well into my illness. Now... When I had my first heart transplant during my junior year, that sort of interrupted things, right? And so now, I was at risk for being get held, getting held back a year and now not being able to graduate on time. When I was told that if I worked hard enough and that my teachers would be willing to work with me and I could make up for that work throughout the summer, that I could still potentially graduate on time, I decided that I wanted to give that a shot. Because I had been such a great student my entire life, I did not want to just give that up now. And so I did work with tutors, and again, my teachers at my high school were so incredibly supportive, and I worked very hard throughout that summer while everybody was off um, to make sure that I could continue my senior year on time. And at that point, I worked not just hard, but I was an overachiever, and I really? got admi- yeah, I got admitted to Columbia University early decision of my senior year. You must have felt pretty good then. I felt on top of the world. <laughs> what have you done to give back to others? Because that's what I find with anyone who has gone through severe trauma, almost anyone, and that is that they want to take their experience and pass on their tips and knowledge and strength to other people who may be suffering the same or as I mentioned even something very different but it's still the area of suffering and struggles. So what have you done to give back to others who possibly are struggling, not just with severe health issues, but possibly drug addiction or emotional trauma or whatever. How have you done that? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. I would say that it started with me with the pediatric patients of the hospital because having lived that myself and knowing what it was like to be a young child in the hospital. It was very important to me to help those children kind of go through those difficult experiences. I knew that things like when the child life services would come around with special toys or they would bring movies or books for me to read or puzzles, how much that lifted my spirits or distracted me um, when I was going through tough times. And so I have organized a toy drive that I do twice a year. I've been doing that for about five years now, where um, my local community joins in and we have 
over 250 toys that we donate each time, um, which is so greatly appreciated by the entire staff at the Children's Hospital. And then from there, as you said, that need to give back and help people just grew from that because now seeing how much I was able to help these small children and then I realized that I was also affecting adults in the process too who were going through similar situations and again not just medical but yes emotional and yes. personal um, just life itself and when I would share my story and seeing how many people were able to relate on so many different levels right. it, it made me want to open myself up more because there's comfort in realizing that you're not alone when you're dealing with a particular situation when you can look and say wow somebody else is going through something similar and especially if they see me overcoming it inspires them or motivates them that hey maybe I can get through this too if he can and so that was a big driving force for me. Two things you said there. Distraction was one. And I understand with the toy drive and what you're doing, that is awesome to think that even a small distraction like a toy can help. All the more reason that we should give, you know, give to our give to our children's hospitals and and create this distraction that can help these little kids that that are struggling so much and it it might be a temporary distraction right but obviously from what you just shared it made a big difference and will continue to make a difference i really appreciated that yes thank you the other thing that you that i noticed was that very often people who go through severe trauma have pity parties and we all have been to them we all have been to our own and we certainly have been to other people's as well but you what you just said though really struck me as well and that is when you choose not to have a pity party but look at someone else who may be hurting more and in that lies a key I think it's a key that we all as humans need. No matter how bad things are, somebody's going through something worse. Or can I help someone go through what they're going through because of where I have been? That sounds like probably what you have done with your life. Is that correct? Yes, for sure. For me, I believe that everybody is entitled to their emotions. and. I never take away from people feeling down or going through sadness because I believe that that is healthy and that you have to go through that. However, the pivotal moment is being able to decide that you need to pick yourself up and once you've gone through those emotions of sadness That's and right. crying, that you make up your mind that, okay, what am I going to do now to make this better? Give yourself enough time to grieve, but then also decide on a time when you are now going to say, okay, enough. I have to pick myself back up and get through this. Well stated. So tell us about the foundation that you founded and who benefits and whatever you want to share about that. With my foundation, 
that stemmed from the fact that so many people that are suffering with this rare disease, which is not many, um, it is very rare, and I was told the last time that maybe a hundred people in the country are currently diagnosed, but I've realized that they have no direction. Um, with me, once I started my foundation, I realized that a lot of people that would get diagnosed would Google the disease and my name would come up and they would turn to me with so many questions about different experiences. They just, they had nowhere to go. And so for me to have, to give them a safe space to come and to talk and to get advice or, because sometimes again, like I said, you just want to, to know that somebody else can be going through what you're going through and that you're not alone and so we raise money to be able to give people different supplies that they may need which again is not much because there is no cure there is no treatment for what we're going through but there are little things that we can do to help to improve their quality of life and what, and is, what is the name of the disease and um, what are its symptoms or like that, that sounds pretty rare, like you said, but share a little bit about that, too. Yes, it's called myofibrillar myopathy, which sounds a bit complicated because it is. Um, and it's a gene mutation, and there are, mm. there are seven different kinds, so it varies across the board in terms of how the symptoms present themselves, um, at what stage they present themselves. But essentially, the disease attacks the various muscle groups in the body. Okay. And so in my case, my legs, my arms, my hands, my feet, my neck muscles are affected, as well as my respiratory muscles, which is why I have the trach, and my heart muscle, which is what presented itself at age 6. It wasn't until age 27, however, that my doctors linked that back to my issue when I was six years old. And is it hereditary? Yes, it is. Um, and they are not sure whether it is my mom or my dad who carried the gene because none of them present any symptoms, mm. but it was passed along um, through my genes, yes. Do you have, uh, like in your, found well, your foundation, I, I realize is separate, but have other people contacted you with the disease as well? Like, had, is there some kind of um, a group uh, or an awareness? Of what yes, to and look when for? I when I was first diagnosed, that number was very small, and now there are several groups on different social media platforms where people can go and share and discuss what they're going through. Um, but I have met. At this point, over 20 different people wow. who have reached out with the same um, disease. And, you know, we've, in fact, become quite close friends through the Aww. whole process. And you, and you must be a real support for one another, which is just awesome. Absolutely. absolutely. Yes. So now tell us about your autobiography. Who should read it? Why should they read it? Um, do you share your entire story? What Just tell us whatever you would like to about that. I do believe that the book is applicable to anybody from, let's say, young teenage years, about 
15 years old all the way up to as late as 80. Um, that's the good thing about my book. I wanted it to be all-inclusive. I wanted it to be something that anyone that could pick it up could relate on some level. Okay. And for me, that was very important. Another aspect was that when I was writing, I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in. And so I did share my entire story, and I made it very raw and very real okay. and vulnerable because that was how I was going to engage my readers and get them to trust me um, by showing them that I was not afraid and I was not going to hold back. And as tough as that was for me, um, it ended up being the greatest quality about the book because I do notice that people really appreciated that. Because nowadays there's so many different attempts to hide ourselves and put on this perfect image that we're doing okay and that everything is fine when in fact we are all going through our own individual issues and so like I said before although you may not be going through something medical um, you may be going through an emotional hardship that you can relate to me on or dealing with something on a personal level that we can relate together on and so I think my book is very important in just letting people know that we can go through different obstacles in life and for me I have been through many and I think that if people can look at me and say wow he has been through all of this and he's still able to smile and enjoy life and make the best of situations and go out there and party and have fun, go on vacation, then I should be able to also. You answered my next question, which is basically, what's your message? And you just shared that. That is your message. And you can't, as you mentioned, anybody can relate on any, any level with that. And you don't have to go through it alone. Yes. Um, life, life has a way of being very unforgiving but life can also be very beautiful too it's all about perspective it's absolutely. all about how you look at things absolutely is there anything you would like to say in conclusion I know you've said a lot just re just in that last statement but if there's anything else that you would like to say or any words of encouragement you might want to give I just hope that people realize that life is meant to be appreciated uh, it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day and not realize that every moment is precious. Everything can change in one instant. And that's why it's important to express your love for your loved ones and not hold grudges. Try to forgive people if you can. And just take in those small moments. And the day-to-day -day things that you're able to do try not to take them for granted. I would give anything to be able to just jump into a pool again and feel the water on my skin or be able to stand up and walk and stretch, um, be able to take a shower without assistance. You know, there's just a lot of things that I feel like we take for granted. And, you know, days just turn into weeks and months and years. And really, every moment should be treasured. And the people that 
we're surrounded by should be treasured as well. You could not have said that any better. That is so beautiful what you just shared and even sharing your physical state right now which I don't think our listeners were fully aware of and that is so appreciated that you're not having that pity party but that doesn't mean you don't have your low moments of course but you you work through them and you rise above them and that's the message that I see you giving now is there another book in the works or anything else in your future that you're working on Yes, and it's funny you mention that because I just started my sequel a few weeks ago. Um, And I'm also wrapping up a children's book um, for young patients that are going through heart transplants because I think it's very important for them to have something that they can relate to because at that age, you're just so confused about what's going on. Is it like a picture book as well? Yes, yes. And what was the other thing your, your second book would be what? A sequel to my first okay. memoir. Okay, okay. Because a lot has happened since uh, I wrapped up that book about three years ago. Okay. Uh, so it's time to, a lot of people want to know what, what's happened since. Right. Where's the story gone? Right, right. You sound so strong. I really appreciate that about you. You have, you're a very special man. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope because you are the poster boy <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> for never ever giving up always looking on the bright side always looking to the future no matter what has happened or what you're going through in the present so I thank you again for being on the show and we definitely want to talk to you again when you get that second book under your belt it would be a pleasure I am so grateful for any opportunity to be able to share my story and to give others hope so thank you thank you very much and goodbye bye thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to quitting was never an option carol loves your comments and will respond to each one So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.